Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. You can find episode show notes, past episode archives, and listener discussions at our website, thenexttrack.com. And in between episodes, follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. Regular listeners to this podcast know that there are some topics that we have addressed multiple times. I think number one on the topic list would be The Grateful Dead. Probably number two is Bob Dylan. And today we're going to address a topic for the second time, which brings it close to the top five of multiple topics. We're going to talk about the shakuhachi. If you remember last year, I had my shakuhachi teacher Kiku Day on to talk about the instrument that I have been studying for a little bit more than a year. Kiku right now is on a pilgrimage in Japan where she's visiting, I believe, 88 temples on one of the islands in a period of two months. And I think she's about three weeks behind schedule. So when Kiku left, I wanted to keep up my lessons, and I found a wonderful teacher named Cornelius Boots, who was here to join us. Cornelius is shakuhachi player, composer, all-around badass musician. Cornelius, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Cornelius is on the show to talk about the shakuhachi, because I think it's cool, but he also has a new album out, which is called? It's a very long title this time around. It's called Sacred Root, Kung Fu Flute, and Buddhist Blues, Shakuhachi Unleashed Volume 3. So it's the third in a trilogy that just is completed and released yesterday. And so Kiku mostly plays what's called Hankyoku, which are the historically traditional shakuhachi pieces. And Cornelius plays both Hankyoku and things like Black Sabbath and Pink Floyd and even plays Freebird. Cornelius, can you tell us a little bit about your path, how you got into playing the shakuhachi? Well, I was a, I, I was a professional woodwind um, performer and teacher and composer, just fresh out of seven years of indentured servitude at one of the top music schools in the country, in, which is Indiana University School of Music, which is now called Jacobs School of Music. And I did a classical clarinet degree, an audio recording degree, and then a, a master's in jazz studies. And that master's degree was with David Baker, who basically invented jazz pedagogy. And he was very um, open. He, he encouraged my sort of idolization of Eric Dolphy because uh, I was a bass clarinetist primarily. So I was able to really uh, grow in a pretty short amount of time at the end there doing arrangements and compositions for all kinds of different instrumentations. Then I was in Chicago just trying to get my rock band together and, and, and get students and play gigs. And I, I heard a recording of Shakuhachi on a series of albums um, from a label called Ellipsis Arts, if you guys are familiar with them. They, they used to make these sort of book-like world music. Um, oh, yes, I've seen them, yeah. yeah. really incredible. Yep. And so I had this one, which featured the nay flute and Tibetan throat singing and Drupad, Indian Drupad singing, which is the oldest style of classical Indian music. And um, uh, I, was, I, I wanted to see, if, did they come out with another one in this series? And I got Trance 3, and it was the first track was... Ronnie Selden playing a 2.4, which is more like an alto range shakuhachi, doing, you know, a half hour of, or 20 minutes solo uh, honkyoku. And it really, the tone was amazing. And, uh, you know, I had to find out more. And of course, as trained as I was in music, this sort of inner uh, hubris kicked in. And I was like, it's, it's, you know, the flute sounds amazing, but it's slow, can't be that hard. You know, I'll, I'll get I'll get one and that'll be kind of like a hobby. 
And um, <laughs> that was that was I got my first one 18 years ago yesterday when I was in Chicago. And so that's you know it slowly takes over. It's 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 bamboo. So in a musical person's life, the same thing can happen as if you get bamboo in your your yard or whatever. It's it's going to take over, and at a certain point, it gets pretty aggressive. <laughs> that that's a bit disappointing to think of it that way. It sounds like a Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's just that's nature. Yeah. So you briefly mentioned the length of the shakuhachi. We're not going to go into too much about how the shakuhachi is made. There'll be a link in the show notes to the previous episode that discusses it. But one thing that drew me toward you is that you're one of a handful of really badass musicians that play these long, long, deep shakuhachis. And the normal shakuhachi for a student is a length of 1.8, which is what, about 60 centimeters or something like that. And the longer a shakuhachi, the deeper it is, because it's an instrument where there are four holes in the front and one in the back. And those holes are evenly spread out along the instrument. So it's basically the longer, the deeper it is. Some of us get by fine with the shorter instruments, but some of you who have very long arms are really attracted to these long instruments. In addition, you play a very specific type of shakuhachi, which is called the taimu, made by a guy named Ken Lacoste, which is this big, honking, wide shakuhachi. So you not only have long instruments, but very wide instruments. Can you talk about the difference between the sound you get there and a normal shakuhachi, and what drew you to this as opposed to a regular instrument? Yeah, well, that's also a little bit part of a pattern. Um, you know, I started as a clarinetist, and then when I discovered the contrabass clarinet, I thought that was the greatest. And then I kind of came back up to bass clarinet, and that became my main one. On saxophones, the baritone saxophone became my main saxophone. So I have a history of being drawn to the lower timbre. And as a composer, I have this, this I've realized very recently, this gravity toll, I call it. Where even if I'm writing, like, say, a solo piece for saxophone, it'll spend a lot more time in the lower register. And if, and if it goes up to higher registers, that's that, that costs energy. That's got to be sort of the toll has to be paid and you return down to, to the low register. It's just how I experienced the instrument, I think. So to push where that lower point could be and, and see physically how much you could um, get down there, I think a lot of people in Shagahachi go through a phase of that. It just so happens because Ken is making these, these flutes that are a little more flexible than other wide bore uh, and long Shagahachi there's more musical possibilities. He's really got a specific aesthetic he's been developing over the last 10 or 12 years on this kind of bamboo that uh, really is its own voice. You know, it really becomes very different. It'd be like, well, I was a trumpet player, but now I play trombone. It's, it's actually that different. When you say wide bore, how wide are we talking about? Well, um, I could have a comparison, but I mean, this, this, is, this is very wide. You can see the bottom here is a lot of roots and I could get another one but the, the standard one i should know these centimeters but the standard one maybe the diameter is i don't know four centimeters or something and these are more like five so yeah. it sounds like a small amount but you know let's say you were a mountain biker and then your 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 uh your gear increased by you know 20 percent or something that it would feel that that different so at this level like a millimeter here and there and Kirk can attest to this as a, as a student of shakuhachi, a millimeter here or there can make a huge difference in 
what's going on between playing sounds and just playing something that sounds like <laughs> yeah and that's the, the, the gentle breeze in winter we'd say in zen <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> also these taimu shakuhachis are thicker bamboo the walls of the bamboo are thicker they're they're meatier in many ways how does that contribute to the sound? Does that give a different resonance as well? It does. And they're all like, you know, that's part of the fun of playing these flutes of these kind of bamboo and without any uh, lacquer against the inner surface is that they all, they all just have these personalities. And um, so they all have that kind of um, more heftiness to them. But some still have a very light flowing sound. Some have a very focused kind of downward feeling um, sound. And the thing with flutes past a certain uh, pitch is that the sound comes back in. You know, you're, it's a vertical flute. You hold it out in front of you like a clarinet or saxophone. So there's a cycle that happens with your tone and your breath, and you actually can feel the sound return back in once your subtle perception is sort of, you know, trained and you've been playing hours and hours and hours over years. And so the way I feel it is um, the small flute that's the standard pitch just comes back about to the point of your chest in terms of wavelength of the lowest note. And then the lower notes are longer and they come back a little bit deeper. So it's a more of a full body um, feeling just to play the lowest note on, on the flute. And so when you, when you can get that lowest note on a longer flute, like what happened to me when I tried my teachers way back in 2001, I thought, well, that's, that's all you really need. That's, that's, that's hours of fun right there. Just the one note. <laughs> <laughs> Just to get that one note yeah. and, to, and to feel it. Yeah. Yeah. There will be lots of links in the show notes to your website, and I'll link to your music video, Green Swampy Water, which is off your new album. You, it looks like you're playing a very wide flute. How long is that one? Uh, that's a two, seven, four. And like I say now, we, we, you know, when I started, we didn't carry ever the links out to the second, to the hundredth decimal place. But, you know, that's a, that's a fraction. So, that the first number, the, the two, that means two shaku, which is about 30 centimeters. And then the 0.7 is, you know, a tenth of that, which are called sun. So in Japanese, that'd be like ni shaku, you know, whatever, roku, sun. And, and so we don't, you know, spell all that out. Well, a, a 1.8 shakuhachi, the lowest note is a D. What's the lowest note on a 2.7? Yeah, a G. So it's down a perfect fifth. Okay. So that's why I've, I've constructed in my mind, you know, coming from the woodwind, the concert man woodwind family originally, and how certain decisions were made about your clarinet family and your saxophone family alternating between B flat and E flat and going down by perfect force, right? Your alto saxophone, tenor, baritone, bass, they go down by perfect force. And those have keys, of course, and that's how you can get longer tubes, uh, you know, lengths, and then all these keys allow you to reach the... And so I've constructed this kind of inverse exponential labeling in my head for shakuhachi because we're never getting that low compared to those instruments. But because there's no keys, there's a real physical limit. And just going down a whole step, it's kind of like pitch shifting your voice. If you guys have ever played around with that, you'd be like, oh, I'm going to lower my voice a, a whole step, just two, two half steps. It sounds a lot different. And a minor third sounds very, welcome to our podcast. You know, it's a very... Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's how shakuhachi just a little a little shift in you know just a whole step down it's like oh this has a lot more and so i would be willing to call something like the flute i play in green swampy water a baritone 
or, or, or bass, you know, but on the piano, it's ridiculously still right in the middle, basically, but it feels substantial low. And so you mentioned that there's no key to this instrument, and what I really appreciate about Shakuhachi, not being able to read Western musical notation, and when I've played music over the years, I would just keep going, every good boy does fine, or F-A-C-E until I figured out the notes. Shakuhachi is written with a form of tablature, and you can play something on a shorter shakuhachi and on a longer shakuhachi, and you play the exact same fingerings, but the piece is in what we would call a lower key. And that's actually an interesting way to look at music, that the music itself has a reference point that alters according to the length of the instrument, but that that reference point itself never changes. What do you mean by reference point? Well, that the reference point is the relationships between, as we would say in Western music, half tones and full tones and, and, and all of that. And, you know, you're going up a half step and going up a third and back down. And that these these relationships are the same. But as you move down to a longer instrument, you're not changing, say, a full step to a half step because it's it's another key down you're playing exactly the same relationships between the notes. That's right. Just at a lower, at a lower pitch for each that's note. That's right. And that's actually not that uncommon in Western, in the woodwind world. We're doing that all the time. If, 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 you're, if you're a baritone sax player subbing for a tenor player in, in, a, in, a, in a quintet or something, you're going to have to play the same absolute pitches that tenor player played, or they're going to have to all change the key they played in. You can't just keep the same fingering and expect to match the rhythm section, it's going to come out lower. So transposition... But the notation will be different to show that. That's right, because they, the way they... Whereas Shakuhachi notation is 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 more like, what's the term I said it before, like guitar... Um, tablature. Well, you said tablature, and, and that's something that, that's something that um, was said by uh, Zach Zinger in a recent uh, YouTube that was widely watched. It just came out last week. Some, some guy named Adam Neely that does uh, music YouTube... I don't know what they're called on YouTube, YouTube casts. Um, and I don't, you know, and I use that as a jumping off point later that day to talk to students about the notation, because that's not totally accurate to just say tab tablature, just a graph of where you put your fingers. So a tablature, strictly speaking, would be a little fingering chart for every note. So our notation in Shakuhachi is like tablature. There's some similarities but there's also it's an abstraction of tablature, yeah. Because we're using essentially letters. They're using we're using katakana syllables from Japanese alphabet to say do this fingering. But at a certain point, once we know what flute we're on, we will start edging over to saying, "Oh, play this pitch." You know, play chi pitch. Yes, it's a fingering, right. but and then we are also talking about a pitch, and then how we manipulate those symbols is a little more like dealing with letter names than it is a little graph before you put your fingers. So I, it's, it's like tablature, but it's not a fully appropriate analogy. So, so tablature for the guitar is like you say, it's like a chart, but I played viola da gamba for a while, and that tablature does use letters in a different way than the guitar. So it's a little bit similar. I know it's not exactly the same thing, but you don't need to read the pitches in a musical score in a musical staff is what the difference is. And similarly, on viola da gamba, there are four different instruments from bass to treble, and you would play the same tablature on any of the instruments in order to play a tune in a, in a different register. Right, right. I mean, all that, all that notation status stuff is, um, is, is fun. I often forget to talk about it with audiences, though, because ultimately that's just symbolism. You know, this, this, this is a oral, is a very old instrument, and so whatever predated Shakuhachi, I mean, 
the design of shakuhachi is stunningly similar to the oldest instruments that they've ever found, which are 30 and 40 plus thousand year old bone flutes that were also probably vertical and only had you know three or four or five holes. So that's that's an interest of mine is connecting to that deeper, um, you know. And so the notation really is it's it's interesting. Every every school has their own conventions or whatever, but it's really the sounds that are important. Is there a um, is there a, a Western instrument that comes close to being what the shakuhachi is? I mean, obviously, a lot of woodwinds have the holes and change the lengths and things, but the shakuhachi is different. It doesn't have a mouthpiece, for instance. I, I, I've told this story the lot when Kiku Day was on. We had a shakuhachi at my house, but no one knew what it was because it didn't have a mouthpiece, <laughs> yeah. and we could never get it to go. And it wasn't like any other Western flute or fife or whistle or you know anything like that. And so I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm wondering: is there anything that's like it in Western music, other other than the the more aberrant woodwind instruments that we see now that we have now? Well, that's a great question and something I like um, thinking about. And there's there's two sides to my answer. One is I this is my new kind of like presentation title or theme for going back to music schools. Cause since I, I retired from all the reed instruments, um, I haven't been back doing like, um, you know, guest lectures on breathing and, and composition and, and clarinet stuff. Cause I don't play clarinet anymore, but all the stuff I'm doing on shakuhachi is very relevant. I consider shakuhachi, uh, what I'm now calling the grand ancestor of all woodwinds or the grand archetype of woodwinds. Because like you said, it's it's essentially the same thing, but incredibly stripped down um, and very, very based on the natural material. I mean, if you take a moment to think about the bamboo grows as a tube, like in a way we could say that bamboo invented the tube. So wherever we use tubes, you know, it's 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 grass, but it's hollow, you know, so it's, it's also kind of like woody like a tree, but it's it's hollow. There's nodes in the middle you got to remove, but. So if you hear the wind going over that reeds or bamboo or whatever, that's going to give you the notion of, oh, the sound comes from that. Um, so it goes, it goes way back in all woodwinds in terms of, like you said, putting holes in to change the length. But on the other side of it, so there really isn't anything that stayed that stripped down would be the answer. But there are other world flutes that have developed a really deep repertoire and tradition, um, like the ney flute, Turkish and Persian and Egyptian ney flute, that they play what's called side-blown. So it's not transverse, like silver classical flute, but it is over like this. So it's basically three styles of playing flutes. Do, side blown. do you blow across? Do you blow across that? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, but it's just a round opening. There's no real edge made or there's no additional. Sometimes they have an additional like plastic piece that some of the um, Turkish players use. And so... Is that to make it easier? Yeah, it's it all, any modification of the blowing edge is about is about changing the tone to have more presence or more high harmonics or get high notes easier or things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but there's all kinds of there's there's interdental flutes that they play in, in in Tibet. There's actually a group a Tibetan group you can find a video of, and he's just kind of sticking the flute up here against his top teeth, and he's playing that way. And then there's nose flutes, and um, so you know if you go back far enough. With natural material tubes, they were at some point experimenting really widely. Um, once the priority became certainly the chromatic scale and getting more notes, then you're going to start adding keys and things like that. So, but the ney flute, the shakuhachi, and the 
in the Indian Bonsuri, I always use as this sort of trivium, this, this triumvirate of, of really deep traditions of very difficult to play, uh, no keys, bamboo-based um, flutes that are played the three different ways, end-blown, side-blown, and transverse. So the flute really is the oldest musical instrument, other than people banging two sticks of wood together. Yeah, and we, and we can't say for sure that they did that before they turned bones into flutes. That's true. We're speculating. <laughs> yeah. and, right. and what's interesting, what I really appreciate about this, is the, the relationship of the breath and the body that goes through the flute, how the music becomes an extension of your breath and how important it is to breathe correctly, both in and out, to get the music. And I know this is something that you stress a great deal. Yeah, it's to me, it's a big part of why I probably stuck with uh, playing wind instruments and woodwinds specifically since since I started in fourth grade. So that's uh, you know thirty, almost thirty six years ago. So I like other instruments. Of course, I'm a fan of music. I'm a composer, and I was already a fan of music. And at that time, making I guess what they call uh, I didn't know they had a name, but watching these hip hop. Uh, documentaries that are like all coming out pause tapes they call them and i didn't realize that's what i was making but i was making sort of collages by by dubbing different cassettes and records and stuff onto a cassette so that would be my early compositional self but my instrument my performer self is really very physically uh, and sense-based uh, motivated in other words what it feels like to get a sound on the instrument so even though you know, I've played drum set, and I can I can do you know some bass guitar and and, and very bad a six string a slide guitar. I just like the sound, but I'm really bad at it. Um, piano, I had to take in music school. Also, really bad at that. But piano is good for composing. None of those offer what you just described to me. There's not the the breath and body involvement where it's not optional. You, you have to breathe a certain way to get your tone. So paying attention to it's not optional. So singers are in that same camp, you know, any wind instrument and any singer has to be cultivate the breath. So let's talk about your new album and your other two albums, because unlike most of the Western shakuhachi players, well, that's not true. A number of them do compose music, but your compositions are a bit different and some are original and some are covers. And on this record, you're playing Jimi Hendrix and Pink Floyd, among others. What prompted you a, to compose your own music, and B, to cover that kind of music that is, if anything, antithetical to the traditional Japanese music that is played on this instrument. Mm. Well, I could, I could explain that, but I'm curious why, I'm curious in what way it's antithetical to traditional, just because it's new? Or? Well, in the sense that it's new, but it's designed for a totally different medium. You know, Shine On You Crazy Diamond is designed for that blues guitar, and a lot of your compositions are influenced by the blues, what you yeah. call Mississippi blues, yeah. as opposed to Delta blues. Why? How do you feel that the blues fits so well with this instrument? Well, um, the funny thing is, once you spend so much time in music as a as a as a whole universe, you really, I guess what I've realized is you really start seeing things differently, and um, it's taken me a while to realize that. To me, it's a it's a it's a no brainer. I mean, you can't. I mean, you've been playing wind instruments with keys your your whole life, and you've been influenced by really expressive singers or slide guitar players. Way all the way back to like Blind Willie Johnson, when I discovered him, was one of my really big influences. 
in the late 90s, I discovered his stuff, which is 10 years earlier than Robert Johnson. Everybody loves Robert Johnson, and they always talk about it. And, and his stuff is good, but the Blind Willie Johnson stuff, you can't put it in any box. It's, it's gospel, it's blues, it's everything, and he's amazing, and it's from the late 20s. You know, So how that, 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 that gets to the root of what music can do or be, and then you start breaking down the essence of what he's doing, there's a lot of sliding between pitches effortlessly that goes on whether it's on the guitar or the voice. So shakuhachi with no keys and with only five holes, you're going to have to have fluidity between almost everything you do. So it's a no-brainer. Plus the, the scale, the five notes, is a minor pentatonic scale. It's, it's practically the same as the blues scale. Um, and so, and, and when I first heard great shakuhachi players, it struck me how different uh, their, their personalities were. Even though they were all very good players, uh, they didn't sound like each other. And that reminded me also of singers. And I thought, well, that's, you know, jazz players get that. You know, you can hear Clifford Brown or Miles Davis. And if you're trained, you can, you can you're not going to mistake who's who, even if they're stealing each other's licks. But, you know, and no offense to piano players, but at the end of the day, compared to singers, every piano literally sounds exactly the same. I mean, I know that I would be lambasted for that saying that because the touch and the personality and the tuning and the... It's exactly, it's literally to, to, to everybody else on the planet, you play an A on the piano, ding, and it's like ding. Yeah. You know, same as if you pick up a bell, it's like ding. You know, compared to somebody singing a note, it's totally them. It's just their personality. I think by having an expert shakuhachi player tell us that pianos all sound the same, but shakuhachis do not, I think we should take that at face value <laughs> because I, I know what you're saying. They do all sound the same, but Essentially. you can't possibly get the nuance. Yeah. You can't, uh, but you can't get the nuances that you're getting on a piano. Yeah, well, it's, it's mechanistic. It's a me it's a mechanism, you know, and, and it's it's not that you right. can't do stuff on it. But I, I was just musing. We were I got out some sati and we were enjoying it for a little while, and then after a while, I was like, yeah, I don't listen to the piano very much. It's so it feels very uh, like tyrannical, like the last. 400 years until probably rock and roll and, and R&B and jazz in the 20th century. It's like from the moment the pianoforte arrived on the scene, it just dominated everybody's mindset about what music is and what it can do. It's a mini orchestra and how that relates to orchestras. And, you know, I'm over it. I think it's, it's had its day. It's like, great. Okay, good job. What was the main motivation for you to compose all this music? Did you feel that the, the, the honkyoku, the traditional music, was too limiting or is it that you were so interested in other types of music that you wanted to be able to express that on the shakuhachi? Well, my process on instruments is that I can't seem to get deeper or improve more until I start writing for them. That's just, I realize that that's not everybody's process, but that happened on clarinet and um, a bit on saxophone and it started happening on shakuhachi. So I got to a certain point in my training where I felt a lot more comfortable. And then I suddenly started, you know, composing things and adapting, seeing if certain riffs and other songs worked. And so, you know, the, the whole thing is like I was leading up to before is to drill into the essence of what music is or what a song is. It's, it's completely free from being tied to a timbre of what it was created on. It's, it's intervals and structures and emotionality and how sounds connect to each other. So, in a way, it's experimental. You know, does does this song uh, work to, to to play? You know, on the flute, and does it feel like a beneficial thing? Some things don't don't uh, make it, and they don't get finished. But all these pieces on these albums, uh, 
felt really good to work on. And they had a whole other dimension for me to offer it at shows. So the Honkyoku is a profound repertoire that we could have a whole separate podcast about, and I'm very committed to that. But that's not the end of the story. Cornelius, I want to thank you very much for joining us. As I said, there will be links in the show notes to your website and to your video and to your albums and all that. And it was great hearing more about Shakuhachi, which I know about, but most of our listeners don't. And I hope some of our listeners try to discover this music a little bit more. Thanks for joining us. Hey, well, thanks for asking about the Shakuhachi. This week for my next track pick, I thought that it would be interesting to pick a record of Shakuhachi music. And this is actually probably the most interesting album I have of Shakuhachi music. It is called Take to Iki by Chikuza. Chikuza is, I'm not sure how this works, it's a performing name of a musician named Kodama Hiroyuki. He apparently doesn't use the name Chikuza anymore, and he's only recorded this one album, which was released in 2013. I will link to the CD Baby website where you can buy it by download or on CD. Chikuza is a student of my other teacher's teacher. So Okuda Atsuya has had a number of students, and Kikude was one of his students, and and Kodama, or Chikuza, was also one of his students. And just as Cornelius was saying, this, this is a lineage where they really like playing these long flutes. And the flutes that Chikuza is playing on this are 3.35 and 3.7. So that's like a foot longer than the one that Cornelius was talking about that he used on his recording. And, and I'll link to at least one Chikuza video on YouTube of a performance he did in Spain where you can see that he is literally stretching his arms out as far as they can go. I, I don't think it would be possible to play anything longer. This is a record that was recorded just in a single take. It's extremely moving. The, the pieces go from about 5 minutes to 15 minutes. It's a wide range of this type of music, but again, with this very, very deep flute that allows for really earthy tones. Anyway, this is probably more shakuhachi than most of our listeners care and I hope you've got an extract pick that is something totally different. It's it's wicked different. Pitchfork magazine every Sunday puts out a, uh, I guess I call it a, a monograph on a on a popular album. And this past week they did um, T Rex's The Slider, or I should say The Slider by T Rex. So I don't have to keep saying T Rex's. And uh, that's one of the three good albums by T Rex. It came out in 1972. It was produced by Tony Visconti who later became even more famous producing David Bowie. I'm not a big glam fan. I mean, I like a lot of glam music, but not because it's glam. I always thought of glam as being sort of the way it looked, not the way it sounded. And I still haven't figured out why T-Rex is glam and why Roxy Music is glam. And the only thing I can figure out is because they all wore sequin tuxedos and things like that. But anyway, I've never liked the slider. Of course, I like Electric Warrior, which is the one with Bang a Gong on it. And that's still played on the radio over here in the United States. T-Rex was much more popular in the United Kingdom. And this uh, particular album is sort of like the best one, according to T-Rex fans. I put it on the other day just to have it on in the background so I could get used to listening to it. Because in the past, whenever I've needle dropped on it, none of the music ever grabbed me. It just didn't have the bang-a-gong sound, that nice chunka-chunka. It has folk sounds and it has this... Uh, well, has has Flo and Eddie on it, who are Mark Volman and Howard Kalin, who there's a Zappa connection. They were singers for uh, The Mothers of Invention for a while. They do some backup singing on this album, and it's really fabulous. 
uh, particularly in the song Spaceball Ricochet, if you give that a listen. It's just really interesting music on this, and I'm, I'm regretful that I did not get hooked on it as, as much as I, I liked uh, the first two T-Rex albums that I liked, T-Rex and Electric Warrior. So T-Rex, The Slider, is my next track. This was episode number 144 of the next track. Thanks to Cornelius Boots for being our guest, and thank you for listening. Your comments are welcome. You can start or join a conversation on this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you gave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can't leave a review, recommend us to a friend or two or three. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.